the very habits and behaviors that can serve you well early in your career can be problematic as you move into leadership. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School, I.D. Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we want to welcome you to the Kelly family and let you know that we exist for you. So if you're an organizational leader who's wrestling with some potential struggles within your organization, or you'd like to a topic for us to focus on to help you get through this season. Maybe you would like to reach out to one of our faculty and hear some trends or ask some of their advice, or you just know of a great person who's going to make an awesome guest for our show. Send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I dot E-D-U. So it's very fascinating to look back and and reflect on leadership. Every single person who's come up the ranks within organizations, whether they're an entrepreneur, whether they're in middle management, or whether they're in the CEO suite, everyone at some level has to overcome barriers and roadblocks to get there. And when we look at men and women, sometimes, you know, barriers may be different. Sometimes barriers may be more. Sometimes barriers may be less. Regardless of, we all have our own barriers to face. So today, we are honored to sit down with Sally Helgeson, who's been identified by Forbes magazine as a world premiere in women's leadership. She's an international speaker, leadership consultant, and co-author of How Women Rise, Breaking the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. Sally, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Sally, um, uh, a wonderful female colleague asked me, it was about a year ago, she asked me if I'd read your book, and I hadn't yet read it, so I ordered a copy right away, and to be honest with you, I couldn't put it down, so congratulations on a very straightforward book that really speaks to women leaders and how to recognize habits that can hold women back. Um, Truthfully, I found myself in several of the habits you address, so it was a real awakening for me. I wonder if you can share with our listeners how you began to formulate this book. What was the initial discussion and and what were the factors that influenced you to tell and talk about what habits women might be engaging in that's holding them back? Well, thank you, Adi. Um, This has been a really interesting journey. I had for about 10 years been running women's leadership workshops all around the world. And it was very clear to me that certain habits kept getting in the way of women. Now, there are many things that that hold women back. There are cultural things, there are structural things, there are things outside their control. But I was particularly interested in that which does lie within our control, and those are our habits and behaviors. And I kept hearing over and over about the same issues that would arise that were problematic for women. A great colleague of mine, Marshall Goldsmith, who is the co-author on this book, had written an international bestseller called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it is about the habits and behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful people as they seek to move to the higher level in their career. That is, make that transition from early or mid-career up into leadership positions. And uh, Marshall had the brilliant insight that the very habits and behaviors 
that can serve you well early in your career can be problematic as you move into leadership. I thought that was very impactful, but I did notice, not surprisingly, given that Marshall's base as an executive coach is about 85% male, that many of the habits that he focused on didn't seem to me to be that germane to women or to, to be much of a problem for women. He had things like learn to apologize and don't always talk about how great you are, which reflected his own CEO male base, but certainly not the women I worked with. So uh, I suggested to him that we collaborate and take that model he had and look at it for the lens of what were the habits and behaviors most likely to hold women back and how women rise is the result. You know, everyone, like I said in the intro, has barriers that they must overcome. Um, and But you mentioned that women face specific and even different roadblocks from men. What is it about these roadblocks or what makes these roadblocks so different? I think it's basically the different experiences women have. You know, women, uh, one of the habits I look at, look at in, in the book is reluctance to claim your achievements. That is, you know, hoping others will articulate, oh, she did a great job on such and such without ha- your having to do it yourself. And what is this based in? Of course, there, there can be aspects of upbringing that pl- come into play, but it also is that many women have the experience of having talked about an achievement and having had somebody say, well, you certainly seem to be proud of yourself or, you know, you know, that's really quite inappropriate the way you were talking. You know, women often get tagged as arrogant or self-centered or being all about me for behaviors that are otherwise accepted in the workplace. Um, Also with overvaluing expertise, another of the habits. Um, Women have often had their expertise, their right to be in the position they are, really questioned so they feel that they have to do everything they can to make sure everyone knows they deserve, they're in the position uh, that they're in. So it really comes often down to the experiences women have early in their careers. Sally, I'm I'm curious, were there some of these habits that you felt at a personal level? And and if so, what were they? Oh, my goodness. I would say that, you know, I probably at some time in my career exhibited practically every one of these habits. Uh, The perfection trap, certainly uh, overvaluing expertise, feeling like I needed to to put out there that I needed to earn every single thing I did. And, you know, I would talk too much about, you know, what I'd done and how I'd done it and, you know, trying to earn my place, expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions. That was certainly one I had. And I had communication behaviors in particular. um, There are two communication behaviors in this book. And one is uh, minimizing what you do. And the other is too much, too much background, too many words, too, uh, too, too many ideas at once, just you know that full flow. Um, in the United States, we do know that uh, studies show that uh, women use on average 20,000 words a day and men use on average 7,000 words a day. So it's not surprising that when you're in a leadership position, 
position. Um, being concise has a very high value. That was something I had to learn. So there, there were many of these habits that, that I particularly identified with. And I think that gave me, you know, an understanding of how they can impact your career and your career choices. You know, one thing you said in the beginning, uh, earlier on in the episode, I'm really fascinated by this concept that, you know, people embrace habits to get into leadership, yet when they get into leadership, it's those same habits that can be their roadblocks. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, why is it that it works for a point and then eventually it becomes the things that prevent you from going further? A good way to answer that is to give an example, for example, the the perfection trap, because the perfection trap is probably the most toxic at a senior level. So one of the things we know from research is that women tend to be rewarded and promoted based on being precise and correct. So being precise and correct is, is good for women early in their career. They're rewarded for that. So they take away the lesson being precise and correct is what's going to be helpful to me in positioning myself as a leader. In fact, it's neither helpful in positioning yourself, nor is it helpful when it actually comes to leading. It's not helpful in positioning yourself because at the top leadership levels, uh, organizations are not looking for people who are precise and correct. They're looking for people who look like they have a big picture vision, a strategic, a capacity for strategic thinking. They're looking for people who are comfortable with being visible because it's usually an outward facing uh, position and who have really broad and great connections. So that has nothing to do with being precise and correct. So uh, that will not position you well. It will particularly undermine you if you get into a leadership position for lots of reasons. You'll have trouble delegating because everything has to be done perfectly. You'll also create a lot of stress both for yourself and stress for uh, the people that report to you. Think about it. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I just love it. No one says that. (laughs) A perfectionistic boss creates a tremendous amount of stress. Sally, I want to follow up on this idea of perfectionism because I recently had a group of students do a survey of themselves and their peers. And what they found was striking when comparing the cause and and the level of stress, our female students compared to our male students suffered significantly more from this push to strive for perfectionism. And I'm wondering what advice we can give to younger people, especially young women, uh, how to correct this, this push toward perfectionism? What is it that we can help them do to get over that? I think there are three things. The first thing is, think about what we were saying earlier. At a leadership level, they're looking for big picture and strategic. So what you, if you, you want to focus on the big picture of what it is that you want to contribute, to the world, to your organization, in your job. What is that, that that big picture item that you want to contribute? So that will take you out of over-focusing on the details. Secondly, it's helpful to learn to really take in the idea that being a perfectionist 
will undermine you. And guess what? It won't make you very popular either. <laughs> People really are stressed out by perfectionists. So you want to be able to come to a point where you really accept that. A third thing, uh, well, there are two other things. One is, I think it's very helpful to have a kind of a mantra. When you're a perfectionist, you want something that kind of reminds you, wait a minute, perfectionism is not what I'm seeking here. I'm seeking to be effective. I'm seeking to be collaborative. I'm seeking to elicit good ideas. I'm seeking to find a better way. And one way you can do that is just have a little phrase that reminds you of things. My co-author Marshall is the least perfectionistic person I've ever known. And I have an example in the book. We were working together and uh, he, he, I, I live in uh, the Hudson Valley, north of New York. He had an apartment, New York city and we were working in his apartment we never took phone calls but he got a special signal from his assistant i heard him on the phone oh okay i uh i was supposed to call Do dr kim at two o'clock uh oh okay i forgot and then he hung up the phone and he went oh well now i happen to know who dr kim was he was the ceo of the world bank so i'm thinking hmm if i missed a call with the ceo of the world bank would i go oh well no, I'd spend the next month telling myself that I was a complete idiot. So when I got home, I was very inspired by that. And I printed out a banner. If I turn my computer, you could see it uh, and put it on my office wall that says, oh, well, to remind myself not to get caught up in this perfectionistic thinking, which is very, very difficult for me. I really got it deeply. And the fourth thing I want to say, and this is this is interesting. Um, it's really helpful to, in any situation, ask yourself, does this need to be done 100% or is 90% okay? Is 95% okay? Is this 80%? Get in the habit of asking yourself that question. Most things don't need to be done to 100%. Now, I had made that point at a program I was doing in London, a big leadership program, and I sort of tossed off and said, you know, some things I guess need to be done 100%, for example, surgery. Um, and guess what? After the program, a woman came up to me and she said, I am the chief medical officer of the Royal College of Ophthalmology. She said, and I am here to tell you the most ineffective surgeons are the perfectionists. She said, surgery, you don't want to aim for 100%. Because if you're aiming for 100%, you're going to be terrifying your team and people aren't going to be able to really contribute. And you're not going to have the flexibility to learn the kind of new information that anybody is learning in real time in a surgery. So I thought, wow, if surgery is undermined by 100% perfectionism, I think we can all relax. Another uh, habit that I want to unpack that really stood out to me is the expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward your hard work. Let's unpack that and talk about why this becomes a roadblock for not just women, but even men as well. Oh, yeah, that can be a roadblock for both women and men. You know, it comes because of a reluctance to claim your achievements. When you're reluctant to claim your achievement, which is habit one in the book, you look for ways to get noticed without actually having to step up and do the work of that yourself. 
therefore, a typical way you will try to address that is to just hope or expect that other people will notice what you do. I became aware of this years ago. I was working with a group that was doing some consulting for professional services. And what they found was that women were very, very reluctant to talk about what they did. Uh, and they tended to be poor at it. And as a result, they, they got overlooked for a lot of work that they could potentially be doing. And so I started asking younger women in the organization, are you good at talking about it, bringing attention to what you contribute? Most of them said they were bad at it. And when I asked them why, I heard one of two things. I heard, you know, the first was, well, if I have to act like that jerk down the hall to get noticed, no, thank you. Well, in other words, they took the most obnoxious person in the organization and said, either I have to be like that or I just draw, draw back. That's a you know, it's a, an either or approach that doesn't serve you. But the other thing they said over and over was, I believe that if I do great work, people should notice. And, you know, maybe they should, maybe they should. Uh, they, sh they probably should, but chances are they won't um, because people are busy, they're focused on other things, and every one of us needs a way to bring the information about what we're doing to a larger consciousness in the organization or how we contribute will get lost. And that's dangerous because if it gets lost, we will feel under-recognized and we will begin to disengage. To a follow-up to that, I'm curious what factor of fear of being prideful or fear of being perceived as selfish comes into that because, you know, for me, like this is one that resonates with me and it's thinking, well, if I'm bragging or if I'm bringing my achievements to the forefront, it appears that maybe I'm just being arrogant, maybe I'm being selfish, maybe I'm trying to put myself in the center but in, instead of hoping that someone sees the hard work, you know, so talk about where does the fear and pr of pride and being arrogant come into this? I think it comes in in two ways. The one way it comes in is it's a fear that you'll be taking it away from other people. Uh, you know, and, and I hear this all the time, you know, oh, you did a great job on that. Well, my team did a great job. Okay. Your team did a great job, but you did a good job. You did a great job too. It's not either or. So that recognition, you're not necessarily underplaying what other people do. Yeah, uh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, it was a really hard task. I did, um, I did my best and I had great support from my team. It's not an either or. You're not just because you acknowledge it doesn't mean you're taking it away from other people and not being a wonderful, generous person who acknowledges others. So, so I think that's part of it. But the other part, not, which I think is, is both more prevalent and harder to manage, is exactly what you say. It's that fear of how you'll be perceived. And I think that, that many women and also men who exhibit this habit or behavior are overly involved in trying to manage other people's perceptions. What we need to focus on is what is it I am trying to contribute here? What is that one thing I'm trying to contribute? And how can I best convey the information about what I'm trying to contribute to the people who need to have it? And so I find that thinking about framing, in other words, 
what we're contributing as information is very helpful because it begins to make it neutral. This is information that other people can benefit from having rather than, oh, am I talking all about me? So that's a, a really important thing to do. One other thing I'd like to say about this is that when you get overly involved in trying to manage everybody's perceptions, you don't give them time to get used to you and to begin to form an opinion of you from a variety of things you're trying to manage from the get-go. Let me give you an example from my own experience. It's not in the book, but I realized afterwards how much it informed it. Uh, decades ago, I was working in corporate communications and I was seated in a meeting. I was the most junior person and the only woman. And um, I, I had an idea that I thought was really good, so I shared it. And afterwards, as we were walking out, my boss's boss kind of came up and sidled up to me and he said, huh, well, boy, you sure, aren't sh you sure aren't afraid of sharing your opinion, are you? Most not condescending way. And I don't know what got into me, but I just said, no, I'm not. You know, I didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, was I inappropriate? Please forgive me, I'm a horrible person. And I didn't say, no, I had a perfect right to do that. I just said, no, I'm not and continued walking and then thought, okay, I'm done here. I'm toast. I'm, you know, I, 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 this guy's gonna make sure I'm out of here. Nothing happened. Uh, it was a couple weeks later, I was in an office. He was in an adjoining office with the door open with another colleague. He didn't know I was there. And he suddenly said to her, you know what I like about Sally is, you, you know, you really know what she thinks. In other words, he took three weeks and he got used to the idea. So he wasn't horrified by it. And, and that happened because I was able to not try to rush in and manage his perceptions. Many of us have a perception where we'll think, oh, that person is arrogant. You know, I've gotten to know that person. He's not arrogant at all. He's just very clear. So give other people time. Sally, I want to go back to something you said just a second ago, which is the idea of women taking credit for the great things that they do. And I, I have to tell you a story, but then there'll be a question at the end of this. Um, there was something that we had accomplished at the school and it was, it was really a significant accomplishment. And I got a note back from uh, someone else in the university and, and she was congratulating me. And I sent the, uh, the note back very, very quickly. And I said, Oh no, it's really the team. It's not me. You know, I'm, I, I'm just along for the ride. And she wrote an immediate email to me and basically said, shame on you, shame on you, um, because you're not being a good role model to our young women. And I picked up the phone, I called her and I, I, and I said, I need to talk to you right away. And, and I said, thank you. And, and she said, oh my gosh, I thought you were going to call and yell at me because I was so direct with you. And I said, no, thank you. Thank you for reminding me that women in leadership positions have to be good role models for our young women. I can imagine that your advice is, as you begin to tackle these habits yourself, you're setting the stage for others to follow. That's exactly right. You are setting the stage. You are stepping into the position of modeling effective, appropriate, habits that will serve you in your career. What's wrong with that?
you know, one thing that I really do admire uh, about women in leadership is they're great at building relationships around them and, and making connections, you know, and, and, but then one of the, one of the habits you say that is a hindrance is, you know, it's focusing so much on the building that you forget to leverage those relationships afterwards. So talk about that transition of, you know, building being a strength and what's natural, but how does one then go back and start leveraging those relationships to help their cause? Exactly. You know, this is something I noticed for years. I kept thinking women are very good often at building relationships, strong relationships, supportive relationships, great networks. Why isn't it more advantageous to them in their career development. And it began, I began to realize it's because women are often reluctant, again, because they're trying to manage perception. Women are often reluctant to engage the people that they're connected with to either help them achieve a tactical that is job related or strategic career-related objective. They don't want to do that. I say, why don't you want to do it? Oh, I don't want people to think I'm a user. I want people to know that I genuinely like them. And when you can't do that, when you can't get into this kind of give and take where you're asking for help and you're giving help and you're being a resource, you sort of take yourself out of the flow of being a player in a way. I mean, Players are people who know how to give and exchange favors and help one another to position themselves well. And it doesn't all have to be shallow and transactional. And I think one of the reasons is that women are reluctant to do this other than they're trying to manage perception is they often don't see themselves as a potential resource for people down the line. Because I have seen uh, particularly men, but also women who are very good at this because when women are good at this, whoa, watch out. They are real movers. Um, But I've seen men and women who are really good at this and their attitude is almost, you know, that person is lucky I asked them for help because now I am a resource for them going forward. So it really, it really indicates that you're thinking of yourself as someone who's going to be valuable to know in the future. Uh, So that's an important Thing. But, you know, I always say when when women say, you know, but oh, I'm really, you know, um, I'm really reluctant to do that. People, you know, think I'm a, a, a user. Research shows that the number one reason people help other people is it makes them feel good about themselves. So why would you deprive other people of the opportunity to feel good about themselves by asking them to help you with something. You wanna ask them very clearly. You wanna be concise and succinct. You don't wanna ramble on and give them the responsibility of figuring out what the heck you're trying to ask them about. But, But it is really, really important that you give other people that opportunity and then position yourself as someone who can be helpful going forward. Sally, uh, maybe a quick, very quick two-part question. I, I shared your book at a meeting of Korean uh, women leaders in Seoul, and it really resonated with them. So I'm wondering if you had a lot of good receptivity on a cross-cultural basis to the book, and is there maybe one of these habits that you've seen that 
uh, is really uh, an issue in, in international cultures that you've addressed? Yes, I think that the biggest can, the biggest surprise of this book has been the international impact. Uh, we've sold the rights in 19 languages. Uh, I have delivered programs on the book in Dubai and Japan and Brazil and Egypt and virtually in Russia. I did the launch in Turkey. Um, the, the actual launch, but virtually in Armenia and Russia and, and, and certainly in Korea and Singapore, et cetera. So that has been fascinating. We even sold the Mongolian rights. That's something I, I was never on my radar screen. So what has been interesting is to watch how resonant many, if not most of these habits are. I think they play out differently. They're different to address in, for example, Japanese culture and many Asian cultures. You really, you know, talking about your own achievements is, is something that is frowned on for men and women, but men have often found a way around that through their networks to make sure what they do is known. So I think there are different challenges. But these are pretty consistent. And I would say that the perfection trap, the perfectionism is probably the most resonant in every single culture. You think of really different cultures, you know, where I've done programs, um, you know, from Israel to Russia to Korea, Japan, Malaysia, Egypt, Ghana, those are very, very different cultures. And I've done programs in all of them. And the perfection is the one that people resonate with. So there's something we're doing. And I think part of it is that global organizations really do reward precision and correctness among women and create uh, cultures in which um, that encourage perfectionism at, a, at an early and mid-level. That's all the time we have this week. Join us again as we conclude this part two with Sally Helgeson, who's been identified by Forbes as a world premier in women's leadership. She's an international speaker, leadership consultant, and author of How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job, available where books are sold. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Idi Kesner. Our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.